Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host, and I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia, human-centered design, Erie Neighborhood House, and Alvin Schecksneider. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit utopia. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account, and you'll find a link to open the account on the page for this episode. You can also email me questions at ValerieFLeonard at nonprofitutopia.com, but I just want to manage expectations and let you know that I probably will not be able to respond to you until after the show. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. We encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the Nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section. So it's not uncommon to start a new initiative with the idea of, quote, if we build it, they'll come, unquote. What if instead we started the process with the end users in mind and built solutions tailor-made to their needs? Today's topic is addressing community needs through human-centered design. We'll talk about how human-centered design can bridge the needs of those closest to the problem for example, clients and users, with those who actually have the power, privilege, and resources to design policy and initiatives in organizations and in communities. Our guest for today is Alvin Schecksneider. He's the Senior Director of Operations for Erie Neighborhood House here in Chicago. Alvin is working with them. Um, Erie Neighborhood House is a social service agency founded in 1870 that promotes a just and inclusive society by strengthening low-income, Latinx, and other diverse families through skill building, access to critical resources, advocacy, and collaboration, and other action. Previously, he was the Director of Operations at Greater Good Studio, a social innovation and design consultancy that works with social impact organizations at a local, national, and international level using the lens of human-centered design. Alvin's previous roles include Director of HR at Youth and Opportunity United, the Director of Planning and Administration at UMI, Urban Ministries, Inc., and Global Management Associate at Albert Abbott Labs, where he held roles in both Chicago and Shanghai, China. Bachelor's in social, I'm sorry, in political science from Morehouse College, a master's in management and organization from the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management, and a postgraduate certificate in international studies from Cornell University. He also studied for a year at the London School of Economics via the Luard Scholarship. So Alvin, as you can see, is very, very accomplished, and I did not read everything that he sent to me. I'm sure as we talk, he'll share some of his other experiences that are not in the resume that I just read. So Alvin, thank you so much for being a guest. And again, before we get started, can you share a little bit more about your background that I wasn't able to share in the introduction? Sure. Uh, Valerie, I also want to just uh, thank you for the opportunity to come on um, Nonprofit Utopia today and connect with you and um, uh, all of your listeners and uh, have uh, 
what I'm sure will be a very exciting uh, conversation. Um, so outside of uh, work um, and uh, out, outside, honestly, of being a, a newish parent of, uh, of two uh, beautiful children, um, uh, oh, I'm also the board treasurer. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you learn a lot about management from having children, actually, which is a whole other conversation, <laughs> I'm, I'm realizing, but uh, including humility. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, you know, outside of those things, uh, I'm also the board treasurer for a social enterprise organization called Creative Reaction Lab. Uh, it's a national organization mm -hmm. uh, where we educate, train, and challenge cities to co-create solutions with Black and Latinx populations. Uh, so that they mm -hmm. can design healthy and racially equitable communities. Um, so that's kind of getting into this conversation around design, which I'll talk about a little bit more. Um, I'm also, mm -hmm. uh, in 2019, um, an uh, incoming social innovation fellow with the Starting Block Institute. Uh, Starting mm -hmm. Block is a fellowship that's probably about 11 or 12 years old, and it focuses on um, a number of different sorts of um, areas of focus, so human-centered design, storytelling, managing across polarities, whether they're political or institutional, um, as well as inclusion and unconscious bias. Um, previously, I was uh, the board co-chair of a nonprofit, a wonderful nonprofit here in Chicago called the Chicago Freedom School, um, which is not really a school. It's more of a, mm -hmm. an institute for young leaders. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're amazing. Yeah. Um, I also uh, was a national advisor and coach for the Social Enterprise Alliance, uh, working with um, mm -hmm. social entrepreneurs across the U.S. and just helping them think through their business models. And um, I was also a, a fellow with the Impact Leadership Program, which is um, a fellowship uh, run by the Chicago Urban League um, in conjunction with uh, the Booth School of Business at University of Chicago. So. Oh, this is great. As you were listing some of the organizations with whom you work, I just thought of all the friends that I have working with those organizations in some form or fashion that you may know. And, you know, when mm -hmm. you spoke of the Freedom School, I immediately yeah. spoke, uh, thought about Mariam Kaba. She's now in New York, uh -huh. but she was very active with the Freedom School here in Chicago. And, yeah, and, and I never met her in person. I never met her. Oh, I've awesome. never met her, but I'm a huge fan. I'm such a fan of hers, yeah. <laughs> oh, she is awesome. And then John Ziegler, yeah. Egan Urban Center. You know, when you talked about working uh, with the black community as well as the Latinx community, trying to bridge those gaps. I know John Ziegler with DePaul University has gotten, you know, a number of um, grant-funded projects to do some of that work. So I'm just wondering if at any point your paths may have crossed with John Ziegler. Interesting. No, so not yet. And this is, um, you know, my time with uh, Creative Reaction Lab is, uh, I've probably been working with them for about a year and a half now. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, this, this sort of space uh, for me is a little newer, mm -hmm. but um, it sounds like someone that I should, you know, definitely uh, yeah. look into and, and read up on for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm putting I'm making a note right now to put you guys in contact with one another. I think you'll get along. That great. would be amazing. Awesome. And, and thank you. <laughs> sure. And then with the uh, Enterprise Alliance, I'm just thinking. Well, Social Enterprise Alliance. I'm thinking about Mark Lane. I'm sure yeah, yeah. Across. We're uh, we. Yeah. Yeah, we've connected. Um, We've connected online and um, have sent a few emails. Haven't met in person yet, but again, it's a like you said, it's like similar circles. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of people yeah. that I've, you know, am fans of from afar. And it's like I need to grab coffee <laughs> with this person. You know, I mean, you know the deal. Yeah, yeah, you guys are all in good company, I think. And then you and I have something in common. We both went to school in the Atlanta University Center. This is such a tiny world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, AUC. So it's nice to always run into people <laughs> up here in Chicago that have that connection to Atlanta. And we probably should be in Atlanta right now, to be honest. Like, you know, after <laughs> last week, oh, my gosh. I know. Oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> oh, okay. Why? Well, that's not why. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. We're here. We're here. But that's not 
why we're here for the conversation and excuse me for exactly. you know being the one to kind of pull us off track, but you know, I just had to <laughs> no go worries. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Okay, so let's talk about social innovation right now. And social innovation, as you know, means different things to different people. And just so we're all on the same page during the podcast, what do you mean when you say social innovation? Sure. So um, I think social innovation means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And um, it, it's, you know, to be honest, I think it, it's kind of buzzy, buzzwordy. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm always cautious when, when, when I use it, but it is still something that I think uh, draws people to certain ideas. So mm-hmm. one way that I've seen social innovation play out is, you know, this idea of using technology to create some sort of positive disruption in the way things are done. A lot of ed tech companies, uh, you know, this is like their bread and butter, butter, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, creating new ways Mm -hmm. to empower um, educational institutions to manage data or or what have you. Uh, Another space that I've seen social innovation sort of be um, called to as as a sort of idea is, you know, the idea of strategic partnerships that are creating new collaborative outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this idea of synergy, which um, is, is another sort of buzzword that I always try not to use, even though I learned it in business school. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, yes, yes, quick yes. way to turn people off in social services when you say synergy. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Um, this is true. But, yeah, it's true. It's true. So I, I try not to say it with my team. Uh, here, you know, when here when I say social innovation, I'm referring to the use uh, specifically of human-centered design, um, often used interchangeably with the phrase design thinking in spaces of and for mm-hmm. social impact. And again, okay. you know, it's, um, it's important, to, you know, just to, to note that um, in, in um, Greater Good Studio, which is sort of like my, my personal sort of birth narrative or starting point for, for you know, working um, in human-centered design, understanding what it is, uh, you know, we often wanted to make sure that we were uh, cautious with the term social innovation um, and how we used it, uh, because it can sound mm-hmm. a little lofty and fancy. Um, sometimes the outcome of human-centered design as a process, which we'll get into, um, actually is something that's breakthrough and it's incredibly innovative and no one has ever thought of it before. However, sometimes it's, uh, you know, resulting in something that is iterative and it's simply just a mm-hmm. new way of looking at an old concept or idea that works for um, the institution or the user um, for the moment, and that's okay. Okay. So when we talk about social innovation and impact design firms, you know, what exactly do they do and what types of organizations actually occupy that space? Yeah. Uh, so the space is still new and it's uh, still developing mm-hmm. uh, from a sort of um, social impact standpoint. Design mm-hmm. firms uh, that work with uh, consumer packaged goods and, uh, you know, marketing, uh, helping market products, uh, you know, to consumers, cars and cereal boxes, those sorts of things. Those types of firms have been around uh, for a while. Um, But from a social sort of impact design um, innovation standpoint, um, again, the space is is still new. I personally can speak most strongly to what Greater Good Studio does, um, Mm -hmm. uh, having uh, spent my time there. Um, And then also just noting that, um, you know, I uh, personally was a internal staff person there. So I ran all their operations, their prof, you know, over profit okay. and loss, helping manage their um, their projects and making sure that we were profitable. Um, so I wasn't a client-facing mm-hmm. um, consultant. Uh, however, the, the great thing about being there is that um, uh, the founders ran, ran their business like we coached our clients to run theirs, their, their you know, oh, organizations. Awesome. And so that's, that's the lens that I bring to this. Um, so Greater Good Studio is a design firm for social impact um, and, uh, you know, with the goal of advancing equity. So we would have clients that would come to us to essentially get unstuck on a variety of issues. Um, mm-hmm. and, the way that, and the way that we would sort of support 
that getting unstuck uh, could be creating a, a program or a tool, um, an experience, or actually teaching the practice of design to individuals um, in nonprofits, government agencies, and foundations who have been tasked with some sort of organizational um, or institutional change. Um, mm -hmm. the, the focus of our work is behavior change. So mm -hmm. if a client came to us, we would frame, we would help them to frame a problem this way. I want parentheses end user to parentheses do a new behavior. So mm -hmm. the framing of the problem has to be rooted in some sort of behavioral change for something to stick and be sustainable. Um, the types of solutions that we designed, uh, you know, oftentimes are services or programs that are sort of complex and have a lot of different sort of layers to them. But there are a number of things that Greater Good Studio designs, um, you know, mobile apps, software, uh, physical products. Um, it could be a mm -hmm. card game helps um, uh, a group of decision makers uh, make tough decisions about resource allocation processes, uh, workshops, retreats, um, physical community building spaces. Uh, so it really, communication strategies, it really kind of um, runs the gamut of the things that can be designed. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's sort of what at least Greater Good Studio does. Um, and then in terms of the types of organizations that occupy this space in addition to us, a you know, common question that we would get um, all the time, we would have these monthly, I think, I'm pretty sure they still do them, these monthly uh, sort of chat sessions uh, called Fireside Chats where anyone who's a you know, fan of, of, of this work, um, of this sort of space can call in and basically ask anyone um, on, the, on the team who's available, you know, like, how does this work? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how, do, how does your process work and what types of clients do you work with? A question that we always would get with those monthly fireside chats is, who else does this? Because again, the field mm. is still fairly new and fairly undefined. Um, I'd actually invite your listeners to check out greatergoodstudio.com and go to the thoughts okay. and stories section. Uh, there's a post on there that's called the only competitors that matter. Um, and competitors not being peers in our space, that's not the competitive mm -hmm. sort of, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about competition. We're talking about um, social inequities as being our sort of adversaries, right? Um, but mm. that, that, yeah, yeah. Um, because we're all, we're, you know, if we are competing with each other um, with these social issues, we're spending too much time sort of trying to advance in the market versus like really making change that sticks, mm -hmm. right? So that's kind of the background on that. Anyway, this article um, links to a huge Pinterest page of, um, a number of different social players in the design space, uh, mm -hmm. established firms like audio.org, uh, Design Impact out of Cincinnati, shout out to Design Impact, Firebelly here in Chicago, um, as well as mm -hmm. you know, consultants and classes and collectives and conferences, um, all who use design methods to solve social problems in their respective spaces. Awesome. And then my question to you is who cares? And, and when I say who cares, who might a, a typical end user be for the, the products and services a, you know, a design firm such as Greater Good might provide? Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting question. So we, you know, might have a client uh, who is a foundation and mm -hmm. uh, they come to us with uh, some sort of problem uh, that could be related to how to better support their grantees on the ground um, in a specific mm -hmm. geography or nationally. Um, and mm -hmm. so there often was this sort of like multi-tiered idea of end user, the direct mm -hmm. sort of Inner, you know, the direct facing client that comes to us and says, I don't know how to get myself out of this, this problem, this quagmire. I don't know what mm -hmm. we need to do. And, uh, but the reason that I want to do this is because I need to better support um, 
the population in this community that we provide services to as a nonprofit or um, my constituents in this, uh, this city or this uh, rural community that receives services from our agency, uh, mm -hmm. I, I need to better be able to serve them. Uh, or again, you know, grantees who receive our grants, um, but, you know, aren't getting the best sort of support uh, from us. So um, that, you know, often was the sort of um, mm -hmm. the impetus or the catalyst to which uh, a potential client would come to our firm and say, I'm stuck. I need help. Okay, awesome, awesome. And just out of curiosity, does the Erie Neighborhood House use any of these strategies? You know, have you been able to be an ambassador for, you know, some of these strategies to you know, bring to you know, traditional social service firms? Yeah, so I've been uh, – uh, so, yes. So um, I would say it's still early, but um, mm -hmm. we've been spending a lot of time – at Erie House, um, really sort of getting some of the leadership um, more acquainted to uh, the principles of human-centered design and impact design mm -hmm. and how, you know, as a mindset, as a framework, how it can support the work that they're doing, be it program mm -hmm. programmatic or administrative, um, how it can help mm -hmm. them get unstuck with whatever problems they're dealing with um, in resource-constrained environments that require nimble uh, thinking and collaborative um, thinking as well. Um, mm -hmm. I personally just, um, I think, you know, if you talk to, you know, people who work with me, they probably, you know, you know, they, they probably say, you know, Alvin, you know, always brings uh, stacks of sticky notes of post-it notes to every <laughs> meeting that I'm in with them. Um, yeah, maybe they're tired of it. I don't know. Um, but, uh, I've, you know, helped uh, facilitate or worked with others to facilitate a number of uh, different um, workshops for uh, mm -hmm. traditional sort of uh, meetings where, you know, we need to brainstorm a new direction, uh, be it strategic mm -hmm. or, um, you know, brainstorm how to redesign a process. Um, so there has been a lot mm -hmm. of that as well. Um, and mm -hmm. I think uh, for my own team, so um, the team that I, I, I manage um, in operations, uh, the operations directors and myself, we meet uh, monthly um, and we have, uh, you know, what I call a, a, a operations design sprint where, uh, you know, for a, a few hours, a couple of hours, we focus on resolving or trying to work through some sort of uh, persistent problem, like a, I like to call them gremlins, but, you know, a persistent sort of uh, organizational <laughs> problem, right, um, that spans all of our departments. About four months ago, oh, five months it. ago is when we first started doing this. Yeah, yeah. And um, we spent uh, probably the first se uh, session just really sort of brainstorming um, all of the areas that, uh, you know, based on staff feedback, you know, sort of like low mm -hmm. uh low feedback in terms of service delivery or, um, you know, energy that those in the room felt about things that could be better. We, we tried to generate as many areas of improvement as we could across all of our, you know, functions, IT facilities, HR. Oh, uh, and mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then after we did that, we spent time um, actually sort of theming, and I'll get into this a little bit more, but theming right. all of the ideas into, um, you know, general buckets of work and then voting on, um, you know, which areas of focus had the highest level of priority um, or the highest level of mm -hmm. impact uh, in the organization. And from that, uh, that's really driving our work for this year. So the first thing we're focusing mm -hmm. on is onboarding, which if you remember, I said, you know, the thing with, you know, innovation, social innovation is, uh, you know, sometimes it, the work that you're actually doing in design doesn't sound as exciting as, you know, creating a whole new sort of paradigm for how something should be done. So, but onboarding mm -hmm. for us is, is, is a really, you know, heavy thing. You know, we're a 150-year-old organization uh, mm -hmm. uh, almost. Uh, we've got 150 employees, four sites. Um, and so when a new employee starts, they're going through um, a number of different disparate processes and systems, uh, and their sort of journey as a new employee, uh, their experience can feel disjointed. Oh, and so it. we all felt, 
Yeah, so we all felt that it was important to really spend time focusing on that. So, you know, we spent one session where we, once we determined that that's what we wanted to focus on, we spent one session where we uh, mapped sequentially all of the sort of events that happen for all of our respective work streams that an employee goes through. Um, and then we mm -hmm. sort of analyze where they go individually sort of within their work streams. And then we, you know, map them together. Um, and after doing that and doing some reflection, uh, the sort of prototype that we have right now, which again, sounds really simple is a, a Microsoft shared OneDrive document, an onboarding checklist that mm -hmm. everyone is sharing, which we didn't have before. Um, and so mm -hmm. we've been, you know, testing that out actually with a new employee and working with, um, you know, hiring managers and, um, you know, regular staff to just see if this is something that is, is, is worth pursuing. Actually, this week, we're going to come back together as a, um, the, the team of operations directors and share feedback on how things have been going. But that's, um, I think, the clearest example, at least in my sort of direct space, where we have been persistently using design. We've, you know, I've used design, we've used design on my team to put together infographics to help people understand mm -hmm. how to better access services um, for staff, either internally or externally with um, some of the outsourced um, sort of service providers that we have. Mm -hmm. um, we've used design to facilitate, again, workshops around diversity and inclusion, um, oh, a number of things. Yeah. So, you know what, I, as I listen to you talk, I, I'm getting ready to teach starting, what, Thursday, an online oh, course wow. in operations management for UIC, and I'm listening to your innovative approach. If you have authored any articles that you know you would give me permission to link to to share with my class, I, I would love it. Um, this is definitely a, a new approach. Um, it's different from what you know what we've been dealing with, which has been more traditional with nonprofits. What you're describing is. You know, processes that I've not heard of um, except for the larger institutions or, or for-profit um, companies. So I, I think what you're doing is really notable, notable work, and I, I really, really appreciate it. And if you don't have an article, if you don't mind um, submitting to a written interview, <laughs> um, and I can share that with the class, you know, because I think what you're sharing is you know is cutting edge and people in operations really really need to understand you know how organizations work and it sounds to me like this this process could cut light years off um, change processes in organizations just listening to you um, and the way you describe it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, I don't have any written uh, articles. Um, pertaining to operations in the social impact space, but I've been thinking about it. Um, but we can definitely talk mm -hmm. about the, the interview piece. Um, okay. I'd love that. Um, but I okay. think you're really hitting on something. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're really hitting on something around organizational change. So um, I think I, I was looking at your background. So you um, you come from, uh, you studied business. You went to business school, right? Mm -hmm. Or management school as well? Right. Yeah, so, right. yeah. And so, you know, the sort of not-for-profit um, sort of approach to uh, to organizational operational management um, in many ways parallels the uh, the for profit and obviously there's some things that are distinct and, and different intentionally right um, because your right, population right. that you're providing services to is different um, right. but this approach of using uh, human centered design uh, in the operational space is something that really excites me because I, I think that you're right it's not something that um, that that you commonly see, certainly in the uh, the for-profit space, it's becoming you know more prominent. It's it's there, but in the not-for-profit space, even in the not-for-profit space, usually when you think about when you hear conversations around human-centered design, um, it, it might be focused more on a program. Uh, but mm -hmm. having worked um, as you know the director of operations for Greater Good Studio, where again. Uh, you know, I had to be able to think about, uh, you know, not only how to ban uh, to balance our budget um, or how to implement, you know, some sort of new system for tracking our billable hours. I had to figure out how to 
justify new sort of process changes from a design standpoint so that my team of designers would actually buy into it. So, you know, mm -hmm. a, a good example of that, so I had, you know, two managers when I was there, Sarah Cantoray, uh, who's a founder, and George A., who's uh, a founder as well. And uh, I was tasked with finding a, a new sort of system for tracking our billable hours. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting in a meeting and, you know, me wanting to basically just like get this done. And then Sarah stopped me and she said, I want you to do design research. I want you to do user research. Um, even though we only have a team of 10 people, I want you to interview um, our client facing staff, our consultants to see why the sort of time tracking system that we've been using is not helpful to them, is not user friendly, mm -hmm. the, interface, the interface doesn't work, whatever. And for me, I'm like, look, like, you know, I went to business <laughs> school, like, I understand, you know, like, I'm going to, like, find, like, 10 options, and then I'll make a spreadsheet of, like, pros and cons and costs, and, like, that's all we need to know. That's all you need to know, and then I'll give you, like, the top three, and then we'll be good. And she was like, you know, no, I want you to actually spend time interviewing and observing how people interact with this system to figure out what is not working for them. And so that's what I did. And so I spent time interviewing our team of consultants. I spent time just observing how they use the system and what their frustrations were. And that actually did help me uh, generate a number of observations that led to higher level insights and themes that led me to realize that the type of system that I thought we needed was actually vastly different from what would actually be beneficial to the organization. So, uh, and it saved me a lot of time. I didn't have to do, you know, the like, you know, cost benefit, pros, cons, I still did that, mm -hmm. but it was like a secondary thing. I didn't put my main effort into it. And so to your point, I think it really does allow for, it's still a rigorous process and you can still use data mm -hmm. in it, um, but it does save you a lot of time uh, versus sort of spinning your wheels, uh, you know, trying to come up with a solution that at the end will not actually be beneficial to the people you're trying to provide a solution to. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you so much. And I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Alvin Sheck-Snyder, Senior Director of Operations for Erie Neighborhood House here in Chicago. We will now take questions from our listening audience and chat room. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. And we would love to hear from you and chime in in the discussion. Um, if you're bashful about calling in, feel free to chat. And as we wait for you to call, we will you know, continue with our conversation, Alvin. Um, so my question to you, you know, from listening to your experiences actually running you know, one social enterprise for all intents and purposes. You you know, you weren't the owner, but as the director of operations, you were holding things together for for the most part. Um, do right. you find that it's do you find that it's more challenging running a social enterprise versus a traditional not well, not nonprofit. You know, some nonprofits can actually be social enterprises, but for our purposes, we're talking right. about. Um, companies that have a mm -hmm. social mission. So do you find that it's more challenging once you have a social mission versus a traditional company that's focused on triple bottom line that may or may not necessarily include a huge social impact? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So, you know, I've worked for a large multinational corporation with Abbott Laboratories and um, UMI is a more traditional sort of media company that kind of has a, a, a mission to it. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Greater Good Studio, which, um, you know, we consider a social enterprise. Um, I, I, you know, I'll say it's hard to say. So every business sector has its particulars around the market, competition, mm -hmm. you know, the push for talented mm -hmm. staff and sort of the legal business structure. Um, but I think what's difficult is that as you mentioned, a social enterprise is just not as cut and dry as a traditional business. So, you're, mm -hmm. you know, if you are a social enterprise, you're, you know, making business decisions that are weighed through a lens of self-identified values. Um, 
mm-hmm. and you, you, you're committing to stick with them or else like why go through the sort of psychological uh, sort of doubt and, you know, the, the, the challenges of sort of navigating, making things work. Um, and, you know, having a, a business model that is uh, not purely focused on profit maximization, um, you know, still is, is not really the dominant approach to business um, in management school. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's increasing right. now, um, but it's, it's still not, it's not quite like the, the standard yet. And, you know, the stock market right. still doesn't assess it on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So that is interesting. And what I like about your experience is it sounds like the owners really, they make everyone walk the walk, you know, whether they are client-facing or not. It seems like a culture that's really totally yeah. embedded in throughout the whole company. And, and it's good that they started out from the beginning. It seems like, you know, as they grow, they will be able to, maintain a, a strict culture that, that really reflects their core values versus that's right. you know, being loose loose and fancy with it. That's right. So when we yeah. when we t- talk about human centered design and design thinking, um, what exactly is that? That's the billion dollar question, right? I mean so um <laughs> and it's you know it's it's a uh it's a very sort of hot topic, you know, popular topic right mm-hmm. now. If you Google design thinking or human centered design, you'll find a lot of mm-hmm. articles about it and, you know, the pros and cons, does it work? Does it not? What could be improved? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's new. So there's still a lot of clarification around the space. Um, I, you know, I mm-hmm. would say that um, how I've come to learn about human centered design is that it's, it's at its core creative approach to solving problems. So um, mm-hmm. it's a it's a mindset. It's it's not just kind of like a, mm-hmm. a process with steps. It's a mindset, but it also um, uh, is composed of of a process or processes whereby you are starting by creating or designing for uh, you know a person or a population's specific needs, and you know the outcome of that is a a service or an experience mm-hmm. or an outcome or a product that is tailored for that same user or group of users in mind. There are, um, you, get, you know, again, if you go down that sort of Google uh, rabbit hole, there are, are different ways that institutions and firms kind of name the stages of this process. So mm-hmm. uh, Stanford has a uh, sort of a school of design. It's, it's kind of a, it's not a in and of itself like a it's it's called the D school and it's sort of like a consortium of all their sort of schools um, and they have this sort of like collaborative space that they operate in. Um, their model for design with the you know their steps are are as follows: empathize, define, mm-hmm. ideate, prototype, and test. Uh, from Greater Good Studios process. Uh, or their standpoint, the process which I was taught, uh, which maps fairly closely to Stan, uh, Stanford's, um, uh, but you know the way that we sort of name it is as follows: framing, research, mm-hmm. synthesis, concepting, prototyping, and piloting. Framing meaning uh, defining questions to answer and the people who you're going to engage with. Research mm-hmm. meaning learning from uh, people, real people, about their values and their needs. Synthesis mm-hmm. meaning finding trends and patterns of, be, you know, of behavior and areas of opportunity that could be addressed with some sort of solution. Concepting mm-hmm. being uh, creating or generating a high quantity of new ideas, quantity over mm-hmm. quality. Prototyping meaning Um, developing or making like tangible, like touchable, like mock-ups that are like low Mm -hmm. fidelity. So maybe it's just a piece of paper that you folded into some sort of model or, um, you know, something, uh, you know, that you can sort of shape for the the purpose of testing or piloting your idea um, in real time uh, with real people for real feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, a lot of people – 
uh, you know, their frame of reference for, you know, human-centered design or design thinking. I mentioned, you know, people teasing me for all the sticky notes I have or post-it notes. A lot of people, their frame of reference is, you know, a bunch of post-it notes up on a wall during a brainstorm. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. that definitely is a part of human-centered design, but that that is or could be one possible activity of a number of activities mm -hmm. that could happen in the concepting or ideation phase. But mm -hmm. to truly create an environment uh, by which a new idea or a new take on an old idea can happen, that it's actually addressing the core need of the user, you have to adopt the mindset and the process. And, you know, mm -hmm. admittedly, that's hard to remember in a resource-constrained nonprofit where, you know, everything feels urgent and everything feels on fire and you have, <laughs> right. you know, all these priorities with, with you know, low <laughs> amounts of resources. Um, but, you know, we really have found that, you know, it's important to, to let the process breathe and to have mm -hmm. that sort of time to be able to reflect and contemplate, uh, you know, that's, that's important. Um, one, one other thing that I want to note with human-centered design that I think is critical is that you really have to be comfortable with ambiguity. And I say that owning myself that, you know, I, I come into this sort of conversation in this space as someone who, you know, is comfortable with Excel and spreadsheets and processes and flowcharts and things like that. Um, and so, it, it, you know, for me personally, it's, it's been a very humbling experience being in this uh, sort of space. <laughs> I, I can um, imagine, you know, black yeah, and white. You you yeah. like black and white, and and this sounds like so many shades of gray, but That's it right. sounds to me like it's got a lot of potential. Exactly. You know, as, as I listen to you talk, I, I can see where this process, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can see this process being used in say a strategic planning process or rolling out exactly. The, a new yes. initiative, but, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you're, you're, yeah, that's right. You're, you're teeing up uh, uh, some, some further thoughts. Um, but, I, you know, so the, the one other thing I'll say, you know, just getting back to the ambiguity point is that, you know, there were many times at Greater Good where we would have a client come in with a pre-baked hypothesis of what they thought the core problem or issue was at their institution or their mm -hmm. foundation that they needed to solve. And so our team's mm -hmm. job as designers was to not simply validate that hypothesis without question. It could be the right hypothesis, like your problem could be the right problem, um, you know, and, and we could simply just pull, you know, a series of best practice solutions out of our toolkit and say, okay, you say this is the problem, here's the solution, you know, implement it, good luck, and then, like, see you on the next engagement. And that's, you know, that's a fine way of, like, addressing problems like that. You know, that's what, like, some institutions do. And so, you know, we're not knocking that. But I think the thing that differentiates design is that, you know, the work often means that you, again, are spending time conducting that user research almost in an ethnographic or anthropological way. You know, maybe you're sitting with a group of teachers as they're administering um, exams to students and sort of observing what, they, what they're doing or um, you are conducting research with, um, you know, users at like extreme ends of a continuum, you know, people who use, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a service in one way and the people who use a service in diametrically a totally different way. Um, and in, in doing that research, we often would uncover an issue or a finding that was totally different from the hypothesis that the client brought to us. And maybe it's not unrelated, mm -hmm. but it's like a more systemic issue. And so, you know, in uncovering what that sort of core issue might be, um, you know, in design, there needs to be a willingness to embrace that ambiguity so that you can find those insights and opportunities for creative solutions. Like that's where the mm -hmm. creative solutions are really generated from. And then have the courage to say, you know, even though this was not what I thought was the core issue, I'm going to stick with it and mm -hmm. we're going to address it, even, even if right now none of us actually know what the end product is going to look like. <laughs> and that drive, that drove clients. I mean, that drove me when I first had to, like, you know, work through the process internally on a number of internal sorts of uh, projects that we did. Like, it, it, it drove me mm -hmm. crazy at first because it was just not how I was taught to think about addressing, like, problems. That's not, it's not how you're taught. But um, the, right. the ambiguity and the comfort with it is really critical with this, with, with, with this work. And it doesn't mean that you can't have milestones and general expectations, but, again, you just don't want to pre-bake your hypothesis without 
making sure you're doing your work to figure out what the systemic issue actually is. And, you know, as I listen to you talk, it sounds very similar to lean business planning where you're looking yeah. at the value proposition and you're testing your hypotheses, con- you know, continuously, you know, with right. your various clients. You're, you're sitting down, you know, and getting a real good sense for, for what they like, and then you go and roll out a, a prototype based on what they mm-hmm. said, and then you see if that yeah. works. And, you, you know, like you said, it's just an iterative process, and you, you, right. know, you keep going until you get your your best product. And, you know, I'm just really excited that, uh, you know, what the implications could be for nonprofits mm-hmm. if if we were to really catch on to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the connection to lean is spot on. And I um, have a little bit of training in lean thinking as, as well, um, much less. But, it, you know, uh, it, it was interesting as I first sort of entered this space, how much there is a, a relationship, I think, to this sort of idea of a mindset, you know, so I think, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, with me, you know, there's often a temptation, um, at least from the business side to say, you know, this process is broken. Let's throw a lean consultant at it, you know, figure it out. And then let's just kind of move on. And the pushback is often, you could do that, but, you know, are you thinking holistically about the ecosystem in which we are, um, in, in which this broken process is actually happening because maybe right. it's not that department, it's like a series of uh, inputs and outputs across multiple departments that is creating a process that's drawn out too long, and you really need to address all of them collectively to make real systemic change in your organization. And so design thinking, I think, or human-centered design as well, emphasizes that approach of a holistic, connected mindset um, and thinking mm-hmm. about the system and not just an individual sort of disparate problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. And and before we go further, I, I just want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Alvin Schecksneider, Senior Director of Operations for Erie Neighborhood House in Chicago. We're taking questions. If you have them, you can give us a call, 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. If you're bashful about calling, you know, please feel free. Um, you can post a question, but you must open a listener-only account before you can participate in the chat room. And you will see that the chat room is displayed on the episode page. So, Alvin, um, I realize that no two organizations are exactly alike, but can you walk us through what a typical human design process could look like? And I, I know you shared um, your experiences with Erie House. Um, what would you say are some of the common elements of human-centered design? Sure. So I can speak to a classic sort of project for Greater Good Studio that we often use to explain to um you know, new potential clients or new audiences as to what design actually is and how it can be used to solve um, institutional challenges um, in, in, in paradigms. So uh, this was one of the very first projects that Greater Good Studio did. The firm was started in 2011, and so it was one of the sort of biggest and, and newest, uh, earliest projects that they had um, for a Chicago public school called the Academy for Global Citizenship. It's a dual language mm-hmm. uh, K through second grade school on the southwest side of Chicago. Um, and Greater Good Studio essentially was challenged uh, to help redesign um, the Academy's cafeteria that was seeing a, a high number of kids, of young people, go through um, their meals without actually finishing them. Um, despite the fact mm. that the school had, has a reputation for having some of the best food in the city. Um, and so the firm was tasked with trying to create some sort of community-driven research and design project to help reimagine what the school food experience might look like. So, wow. you know, going back to the phases that I was talking about, you know, let's talk about the research phase for a little bit, right, after we frame the problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh you know, our research uh, began by observing meals in the cafeteria um, mm-hmm. and, you know, observing that the, the structure of, you know, how mealtime and the way that meals are put together really didn't change much from 
you know, how our client-facing team experienced it as children. So that was just an interesting observation, mm-hmm. right? Um, we shadowed mm-hmm. key staff members uh, for entire sort of food shifts. So the, 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 the staff that, you know, essentially provided, the, served the food to, to the students. Um, so we shadowed them. We were actually, you know, with them, you know, with their consent, with the school's consent, um, so that we could understand the constraints in which the food was being served in the school. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in order to gain empathy for um, the, the adults that, um, you know, were making this whole process happen, uh, we had a team of volunteers um, who uh, also volunteered as lunchroom attendants, um, you know, essentially just cooking the food um, under direction, of course, um, to, again, sort of empathize with what the staff was going through. Uh, we also mounted, uh, you know, those GoPro cameras um, that you see mm-hmm. at, like, Target, you know, that sit on someone's sort of uh, on a helmet. So we mounted GoPro mm-hmm. 10 kids' heads, you know, which sounds funny, right? Um, again, we had their consent. Mm-hmm. We had their parents' consent or their guardian's consent. Um, and we did that so that we could actually observe uh, the lunch period from the perspective of a child. What does it actually look mm-hmm. like to walk into the cafeteria, to walk into the line, to sort of scan what's being served or what's being offered, to choose a meal, to choose where to sit down, who are you sitting with, what are you doing when you're eating the food, who are you talking to, how long are you taking to eat your food if you're actually eating your food, you know? So, um, again, just being observers, being uh, anthropologists in a sense. And then finally, from a research Mm -hmm. perspective, we wanted to understand traffic flow in the cafeteria, so we actually mounted cameras on the ceiling um, and then uh, capture time-lapse videos to sort of see how, you know, traffic of the kids were moving in and out of the cafeteria. Um, from a synthesis standpoint, you know, talking about the synthesis phase, which I mentioned, um, we did mm-hmm. a lot of rigorous synthesis of the observations that we made, you know, which is something that we, we would do with every project that we had. And, you know, after doing that synthesis, we determined that the lunch line itself was actually the problem. So again, you know, you don't really know what the issue is until you observe and you, you know, spend time thinking through, you know, what the connections and the themes are. So the lunch line was the problem. Um, We found that kids only had a few seconds to choose their food. Uh, They really couldn't see over the counter in terms of what was being served to them. And they're actually, you know, they got, yeah, and they were wasting five of their 20 minutes allocated for lunch. So five, five, Five minutes is a lot, you know, that's 25%. So they're, they're wasting five minutes of their 20 minutes in line, waiting for the food, choosing the food. So, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big observation. So concepting, so the concepting phase, right? So uh, mm-hmm. we uh, worked with parents of the children to help brainstorm and generate answers to uh, this sort of central question that we wanted to answer. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a question form that you often see in human-centered design. How might we? How might we mm-hmm. increase the time for choosing food? And the hypothesis there was that if kids could actually choose their lunch um, and they had the agency to do so, hopefully they would eat more and they would trash or toss less of it in the trash can. Mm-hmm. There was actually a brainstorm um, concept that came, uh, you know, from one of those sessions that really was exciting for the team. Um, and that was to serve the food in courses directly at the tables where the students were sitting instead of having them go into the line. And so we actually prototyped mm-hmm. that idea with uh, a group of, of uh, students, college student, uh, students that we were working with um, at the School of uh, the Art Institute. Um, and we, mm-hmm. you know, used paper food, right? So I, I said that, uh, you know, prototypes can be low fidelity. You know, they don't have to be like, you know, something – you know, fancy, but sometimes you just use paper. So we use paper food and we use, you know, students at, at, at a school in order to sort of test this, uh, this sort of this concept. Uh, and then mm-hmm. finally, you know, prototyping and piloting, you know, that, those phases that I mentioned. So we, uh, you know, went back to our, our firm, our studio, and we actually choreographed um, the new sort of food service that we were developing across people and we timed it. So, and that kind of goes to the lean conversation we were having, you know, trying to incrementally mm-hmm. improve on time. So we timed it and we actually made a sort of map uh, for the team to use in testing out this sort of new approach. Um, and we made sure that we visualized it as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So 
um, you know, what did we sort of end up with after doing that sort of that, 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 that process, right? Um, so from a programmatic standpoint, we did two rounds of testing and we prototyped a new food service model, um, you know, again, where we had lunchroom attendants actually bringing food directly to uh, children at the tables um, in order mm -hmm. to reduce uh, the time that they were not, that they were spending in, in line um, eating that was actually eating into like the full amount of time that they had to, 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 to be at the cafeteria. Um, and then we were also wanting to give kids, uh, you know, a, a greater amount of agency in order to be able to choose the food that they eat so that they would be more mm -hmm. engaged. Um, we also developed um, new tools. Um, so this new sort of program required that we had tools such as trays that would fit long cafeteria tables and bowls that were actually mm -hmm. easy for kids to carry um, and would fit in the school's commercial dishwasher. Um, so, you know, we mm -hmm. constructed basic trays. Uh, you know, sort of from that need, and then, you know, we got a number of sort of bowls from Ikea or some, some place like that in order to be able to have sort of, um, you know, enough uh, tools to be able to use. Um, mm -hmm. And then in terms of client and community outcomes, so, you know, we were talking about behavioral change, mindset change. So we did a five-day test with 50 students, and, you know, mm -hmm. during that five-day test, the kids actually told us that they – you know, how much they love the new service. Um, we had a new course every five minutes, and that kept them interested mm -hmm. in what food was coming next. Um, and, you know, we found that they were incredibly excited about the ability to take time to choose uh, each dish that they were going to eat. Uh, you know, it's like you, when you can choose what you're going to have versus, even if it's only two options versus one, you know, you're going to, you're going to feel excited about that, right? So, yeah, um, and then from a, Exactly. And then from a behavioral standpoint, uh, we actually, you know, we wanted to see whether or not we were actually helping to reduce food waste. So we weighed and photographed each student's leftovers before and after this intervention. And we actually saw a 13% mm -hmm. increase in vegetable consumption. Um, we also found wow. that the kids ate more food overall and they consumed more balanced meals with sort of less complaining. I love that. I love that. And and what I love about this process is it's not just limited to food consumption. You know, you can apply it to several different programs, any program it sounds like, that a nonprofit exactly. or any service or product that a for-profit or nonprofit business would would be launching. And you have the science to prove it, and it doesn't sound like it took forever and a day to get your results. It sounds to me like you could – do an experiment and, and get pretty um, get pretty good data pretty quickly. Is is that right. a fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, yeah, I mean, we definitely did commit time to the project, but I think you know your point about <clears throat> excuse me, you know, being able to rapidly test um, against assumptions and being comfortable with not having a full sort of set of data, um, which is, again, something that's hard. It's so hard. It's very hard for me. Oh, it's, it's I know. Hard you and me both. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, it, you know, this is, you know, foundations and, and government institutions, you know, we're held, nonprofits were held to a certain set of standards around having, uh, you know, data to back our hypotheses. But, you know, again, we still did use data, but we also were willing to say, let's try this out. Let's bring, um, you know, parents together, let's, you know, work with, um, let's work with the staff, um, you know, let's work with the students themselves to sort of test what could be, and then each time you do the test, you get more information that helps you get closer to what the solution actually is. So, and mm -hmm. that's how you can rapidly get to an end result that hopefully will address the needs of the population you're trying to serve. Okay, we have all of one minute left. Um, oh so no! My, my question, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just enjoying this, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm listening and thinking about all these <laughs> different applications, right? So yeah, it sounds to me that human-centered design can, in fact, level the playing field as it relates to the power dynamics between the end users, you know, in this case being the children who are eating the meals, and the service provider who or, you know, tuition. And, you know, that just seems unheard of. I know it was unheard of when I was in school. I went to Chicago Public Schools, and 
you know, we either had to eat what was in the cafeteria or we brought our food from home. So so this is a very, very different approach, and and I, I found it interesting. But before we go, I want to know where can our listening audience learn more about design for social impact, you know, what books, websites, and other resources might they, you know, might they find? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I can just kind of list a, a few resources. So, and these were ones that, you know, were given to me when I first sort of entered the space. Um, there's a book mm-hmm. called uh, Creative, Creative Confidence by Tom and David Kelly. Uh, they're the founders of IDEO, um, which I mentioned, I think, mm-hmm. earlier, um, the design firm. Um, it's a great mm-hmm. book to kind of get started. Um, Tim Brown, who's the current president of IDEO, has a book called The Design of Everyday Things that I think is, is helpful mm-hmm. as well as you're entering this space. Um, Antoinette Carroll is the uh, CEO of Creative Reaction Lab, which is the um, social enterprise nonprofit that I mentioned earlier. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and she has a TED Talk called Justice by Design, and it really talks about mm-hmm. how to um, integrate and ensure that you have a clear and defined uh, lens of equity when using design in communities that are um, uh, disinvested and impacted, um, and it's it's um, it's a it's a really powerful TED talk. Um, mm-hmm. Creative Reaction Lab is a as a you know, uh, a website um, and an organization. I think your uh, audience can visit um, and just check out mm-hmm. some of the resources that they have. Um, mm-hmm. GreaterGoodStudio.com, you know, go there. Uh, there are a number of articles. There's a Medium page where um, there are a number of articles that um, the staff, um, including myself, have written around everything from mm-hmm. um, how to do uh, ethical user research in um, mm-hmm. uh, disinvested communities to um, how to do a brainstorm to how to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in your organization. So. That's a good resource as well. Um, if you're on Facebook, there is a group called Design for Social Innovation, and I can send you all of these links as well if you want to post them on your okay. page. But there's a Facebook group yeah, called Design for Social Innovation that um, that you know um, I'd invite your users to join. And um, mm-hmm. I'll also just mention a few sort of workshops for people that actually you know like maybe after you've sort of read some of these resources, you might want to actually. Um, dig in a little bit deeper. So um, AIGA, which is the uh, Professional Organization for Design here in Chicago, uh, they do at least one or two Design for Social Impact workshops a year. Um, and they're mm-hmm. us- it's usually like $100 or something like that. And it, um, it's like a one-day sort of thing. So, uh, you know, go to chicago.aiga.org and then look up the Design for Social Impact workshop. And then Creative Reaction mm-hmm. Lab is actually doing um, – they're based out of St. Louis, but they're national, and they're actually mm-hmm. doing uh, two equity-focused design boot camps, one in Oakland and mm-hmm. one in New York um, this year. And uh, if you go to Creative Reaction Lab, their website, you'll find um, the sign-up information uh, for those of you that mm-hmm. live in Oakland or New York. Um, or, you know, if you are so inclined to actually travel there, I'm sure they'd be happy to have you, and you can, you know, look into that as well. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. And at some point, you will be the magnet that draws them to the Midwest. <laughs> I, you know so what? Very... So I, I've, I've been, <laughs> if uh, I've been telling Antoinette, you know, like working with her, like you got to get to Chicago because we've been we've been working with the Obama Foundation actually. But I'm like, we got to do mm-hmm. one of these boot camps in Chicago. Um, so I, it's like a, a long-standing thing that I'm teasing her about. So that's that's on my list mm-hmm. for sure. Okay, awesome. And you, you got to let me know about it. And then I will. Definitely I definitely let, will. Our, let our audience know. Okay, yeah. so we end of our show. And I'd like to thank Alvin Sex Snyder. He's the Senior Director of Operations for Erie Neighborhood House for being our guest today. I have certainly learned a lot. I've been taking copious notes. And Alvin, before we go, is there anything else you would like to share with us in terms of parting thoughts and let us know how we can get in touch with you? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess uh, it's a quote that I live by that I think um, uh, I was 
excited to see really sort of overlaid well with design. Um, and I think it works with, you know, social work and organizing um, and community development as well. Um, and, and the quote is, um, is this, uh, proximity will show you things that you won't see if you don't put yourself there. And it's a quote from mm -hmm. Brian Stevenson, who's the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, that focuses on ah. uh, you know, criminal justice reform. And they, I think they're the yep. ones behind the National Lynching uh, Museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I, you know, he's like my mentor from afar. But I think, you know, that, that idea of proximity and, you know, really, I think, lends itself well to, um, you know, thinking about design. Um, you know, how can we be in proximity with those that we need to co-create solutions with who perhaps don't have the privilege that we all do? Um, for people who want to reach out to me, um, LinkedIn is, you know, probably the easiest way. You know, I'm on there. Add me. Send me a message. You know, I'd love to grab coffee or, and, and chat with anyone who's interested about how, uh, you know, principles of design can be implemented into social impact spaces and foundations and government Mm -hmm. sort of agencies. And I guess the last thing I'll say is thank you so much for having me, uh, Valerie. This has been a really fun conversation. I can't believe it's past three. Like, I feel like we just got started. This is not, it's not fair. I know. It's not, we got, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> I know. It, it's not fair at all. I, I've got at least three or four other questions I wanted to ask, but um, I, I do respect our listeners' time, and you have to come back <laughs> exactly. on it. And I mean, <laughs> I mean that sincerely, you know, my, my little churning, got some ideas spinning as we speak, okay. and, you know, I encourage you to do the same. All right. So, again, I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening to today's episode of Nonprofit Utopia. I encourage you to go to iTunes and leave a review, and there's also included instructions in the comment section to guide you through the process. So be sure to gain a, I'm sorry, join us next week for another lively discussion on Nonprofit Utopia. And Alvin, again, I say thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been an eye-opener for me. Thank you. It's been a privilege to, uh, to be able to chat with you and, and your audience. This has been a great learning experience for me as well. All righty. So you take care, and we will hang up now. All right. Sounds great. Thanks okay. so much. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.